Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, one verse this morning, verse 12. We'll read verses 1 through 12 as we come before the word of the Lord. It was an encouraging time on Friday night, and you have a newly installed pastor this morning, so we'll see if that yields any encouraging results as we turn to the Lord's Word. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll focus on verse 12 um, for this morning's sermon. But let's get a sense of the context of the words of our Lord here. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, inspired, infallible, and errant, His holy word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, open our hearts our ears, our minds, to know your truth, to embrace it, to believe it, to have the affections of our hearts set upon it, and our wills oriented to do it, all for your sake, and by the power of your sovereign grace through your Spirit. Amen. Well, I believe it's providential, as all things are, but providential to have such a a text before us as we, some ways, set out on a, a new chapter of our church's life as part of a new fellowship of churches. And this text gives such a wonderful, all-encompassing instruction for how we are to live when we understand it rightly and in the context of all that, that Jesus says. If you were to ask uh, an elementary school teacher, I just told the guys on Friday they're not supposed to turn on the sirens till they reach South Park. I'll have to work on that, especially on Sundays. I told them we, we, we own this stretch of 163rd, and we will take it back if we want to. 
It's fun being uh, the chaplain over there. If you were to ask uh, an elementary school teacher, what is, if you could have your kids abide by one rule for your classroom, uh, what, what would it be? Well, this would probably be towards the top of, of most teachers' lists, right? If, if you could just get the, the younger students to, to think outside of themselves a little bit and to think, well, what, what, is, what is it that I would want that person to do to me? And you realize that, and then you, you treat them that way. And it gets people out of themselves a little bit. It's a, it's a wonderful way to, to keep the peace. And you see how uh, people outside of the Christian faith have been attracted to this rule since Jesus spoke it. And as we will see, that there are lessons like this that even go uh, before Jesus. This wasn't something that was so revolutionary in the stating of it. It's revolutionary when we understand it in the context of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And so as, as, as a pastor, my desire is that if we can rightly understand what Jesus is saying here, then uh, we will be well on the way towards loving one another the way that God wants us to, towards having the right kind of outward face to a lost and dying world that needs the saving message of Jesus Christ, and the way that we render service unto God. So just like the elementary school teacher, perhaps a parent of multiple young children, if you can get them to embrace this rule a little bit, things will be much better. In a different way, in a much more spiritual way, in a fuller way, a richer way as we will see, if the church embraces this rule as Jesus gives it to us, his kingdom will advance. Jesus is giving us marching orders that by his grace will advance his kingdom. So first, how, how do we understand something of this, this golden rule? Let's get a sense of, of how it exists within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The Greek word un is at the beginning of this verse, and that's therefore. And of course, therefore is one of those words that means because of what has been said, now we're going to assert this. So it looks forward and it paves the way for, or it looks backwards and paves the way for what is about to come. So, so what is the, the therefore? It's a so in our ESV Bibles. What is it referring to? Is it referring to what's come up up to this point in chapter 7? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And then, of course, the, the call to do good to those around you or to, uh, to give good gifts. That's a, certainly a good option. That Jesus may be stating that in another way, re-emphasizing that we, we are not to ascend into the judgment seat, to, to be rash in our condemnation of others, to assume that we can pronounce judgment the way that God will. Right? That's the way Jesus' command comes to us. Judge not that you will be not judged. It's never given to us to judge in the way that God does. It doesn't mean we can't be discerning. It doesn't mean we never exercise judgment, but it's just a recognition of our place. So it could function that way. Jesus is re-emphasizing it. And certainly what's happened in chapter 7 up to this point is in his view. But more likely is that Jesus is closing a section that began in chapter 5, verse 17. That's the last time we saw that phrase, the law and the prophets. And so that's what, that forms what's called an inclusio when there is a phrase repeated and it closes a section. So the law and the prophets. Now Jesus, beginning in chapter 5, verse 17, is speaking the law of his kingdom. That, of course, shows continuity with the laws of the Old Testament, but it also reveals things which are, are further developments. Right? There's, a, there's fresh light shed upon the law of God, and Jesus 
gives us these wonderful declarations. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So he sums it up in this one verse. This in many ways encapsulates the kind of life that he calls us to live. As we take it apart, we'll begin to understand it more. We must acknowledge, of course, as I said earlier, that Jesus' instruction has significant overlap with non-Christian teaching. Confucius said this, do nothing to your neighbor which afterward you would not have your neighbor do to you. In the Jewish Hillel, we find this, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Some people get nervous about the fact that uh, Jesus has teaching that has significant overlap with those outside of the Christian tradition. And we don't, need to, we don't need to be scared about that. Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, all said things that are, that are very similar to this. What we're going to see is that when you attach the principles and the life of Christ's kingdom to this, it becomes a revolutionary understanding of this uh, basic and good teaching. There's a lot of good that comes from just this rule in and of itself. That's why it's called the the golden rule. It's a wonderful way to maintain peace and prosperity within a a community. J.C. Ryle says this, this is a golden rule indeed. It does not merely forbid all petty malice and revenge, all cheating and overreaching. It does so much more. It settles a hundred difficult points, which in a world like this are continually arising between man and man. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. That's more of a, of a common or common grace understanding of this rule. It's something that could just regulate life in a, in a better way. Right? If communities, if nations thought about this, they, they would be much better off. You can think about this in the, the, the constantly growing body of laws in the United States. And you can sometimes search uh, on the internet, you know, strange laws or unique laws in the United States. I found one this week. It is illegal to throw a brick onto a highway in Iowa. I'm not sure what they're doing over there in the corn state, but it seems like if you can live by this principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you would think, would I want somebody throwing a brick onto the highway when I'm driving down it? Of course not. Why does that law exist? Why do these strange laws exist? Because it happened. And so people feel the need to make a law. If your life is governed by virtues, if your life is governed by, by values that, that, in a sense, control what you do, you are patient, you are long-suffering, you are caring, these are virtues that, that fill your heart and your life. If you are a virtuous person, then you just naturally don't do things like that. And so this, that highlights one of the ways in which this rule is just good to live by. Is there something that we would not want our neighbor to do to us? Then we do not do that. Conversely, is there something that we would like our neighbor to do to us or for us? Then this is the very thing that we, we ought to do. Ryle says, how many intricate questions would be decided at once if this rule were honestly used and followed? But is this a, a rule? Do we understand Jesus' words as a, as a call for humanitarian goodness? Is it a, an agenda for a social program for all of the world. We're moving into a time of the year where we're thinking about that a lot more. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. These are are good things. Of course, in the Bible, we're commanded to do good to all men. 
And we are commanded to have a goodness that flows out of our hearts, seeking to do good unto all. But Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is always to be understood as the marching orders for the kingdom of Christ, for those who have joined themselves to it. So peace and goodwill, brotherhood, these are all good things. And many of those things fall under the commands that Jesus gives to us. But there's a unique understanding that we are to have as followers of Christ when Jesus speaks this command. And it's not less, but it's more. What would happen if we took this as sort of a, an agenda for, for a social betterment program? Right? How to make the world a better place for all people. And this rule is given equally from Jesus' mouth unto all. Well, inevitably, it will, it will break down because there's such wide disagreement nowadays and, and has always been, but especially nowadays, about the things that we ought to do and what we should want done for us and what others should want us to do for them. We live in the age now, this has come about in the last year or so, of the school board wars. Why is that? Because we have intense disagreement about what our kids should be hearing, learning, being taught to do, what's good for them to hear and to know. There's, there's uh, rampant and intense disagreement about that. So we can never get on the same page as the human race as to what is the good things that we ought to do. Almost 100 years ago now, J. Gresham Machen published Christianity and Liberalism, and this was one of the things he was pondering. He, li he was writing, of course, after World War I, and that had dampened the hopes of humanity a little bit, but there was still uh, kind of this spirit that if we just start living according to the golden rule, we're going to, to usher the world into utopian dreams. So Machen says this, the golden rule gives us a, a perfect example. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Is that rule to be of universal application? Will it really solve all the problems of society? A little experience shows that such is not the case. Help a drunkard to get rid of his evil, evil habit, and you will soon come to distrust the modern interpretation of the golden rule. The trouble is that the drunkard's companions apply the rule only too well. They do unto him exactly what they would have, done, uh, have him do unto them by buying him a drink. The golden rule becomes a powerful obstacle in the way of moral advance. But the trouble does not lie in the rule itself. It lies in the modern interpretation of the rule. The error consists in supposing that the golden rule with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the whole world. As a matter of fact, the whole discourse is expressly addressed to Jesus' disciples. And from them, the great world outside is distinguished in the plainest possible way. And here he gives the key. The persons to whom the golden rule is addressed are persons in whom a great change has been wrought, a change which fits them for entrance into the kingdom of God. Such persons will have pure desires. They and they only can safely do unto others as they would have others do unto them. For the things that they would have others do unto them are high and pure. As we bring this to an understanding this morning, I want us to just think about three things with the time that we have left. Things that distinguish how we understand this command of Jesus, how we apply it, and how we live it out. Three things. Ability, spirituality, and eternity. Ability, spirituality, and eternity. First, ability. In other words, who can carry out this command? Who has the, the ability to do it? Never forget how the Sermon on the Mount starts. We've had to come back to that 
a few times, haven't we? To whom belongs the kingdom of God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Life in Christ's kingdom lives and breathes off of spiritual humility, which always remembers Christ's words, apart from me, you can do nothing. Those who believe this rule to be marching orders generally for the world have to assume that this is something that the human heart can naturally obey. Jesus sends it out to the ends of the earth for all people to obey, and within them, within the depths of their hearts, they have the ability to carry it out. It's a mindset that says hearts are pure, especially probably the hearts of the young. And in order to make the world a better place, you must resist all of its ugliness and manifest the goodness that's in your heart. That's that's Disney doctrine. That's the premise of just about every Disney movie. You have a pure heart. You need to resist the ugliness that's out there. You can make the world a better place if you simply manifest the purity and the goodness of your heart. It goes back to a a philosophical school called Romanticism, and it's, it's always shocking to me how much this kind of thinking has gotten into our common consciousness as a society. William Wordsworth was a a romantic uh, poet, and he he wrote this poem. This is just part of the poem, The The Happy Warrior. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought among the tasks of real life, hath wrought upon the plan that pleased his boyish thought, whose high endeavors are an inward light that makes the path before him always bright. Do you see the contrast from Psalm 119, verse 105? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Here, his high endeavors are an inward light that makes the path before him always bright. The goodness and the purity that you will most find is in the depths of your heart. Be guided by your inward light and your inward purity can overcome the ugliness which society creates. The Bible starts from a very different place, doesn't it? A vastly different place. And those who are members of Christ's kingdom know and understand that anything good you have to offer to the world, anything good that you will do in your life must be directly a result of God's working by His grace. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Jesus says in John chapter 3, in order to live life unto God, you must be born again. And so it it should not surprise us, going back to to Machen's context in the early 20th century, when the hopes for humanity were highest, which we can probably set about 1910. The, The year 1910, there were all kinds of utopian visions going on, thinking that humanity was going to live according to the golden rule, We were going to stop war, we were going to stop fighting, and we were going to make it so that the kingdom of God would essentially descend to earth, and the earth would ascend to the principles of the kingdom of God, and they would be so similar that the kingdom of God would basically just manifest itself in the world and find a world that was already living according to those things. 1910. Think about the rest of the 20th century after that year. Bloodshed, horrors the likes of which humanity had never before seen. You had the communist revolution in Soviet Russia, the deaths of millions killing their own people daily, 
Uh, you had World War I, World War II, you had the Holocaust, you had the Maoist Revolution in China. Again, millions upon millions, a number that we'll never know this side of heaven that had, uh, that, their, whose lives were taken. We had other wars spring up. We had uh, the reality of, of uh, terrorism throughout the world that was uh, manifested to us. We had uh, abortion that uh, was made law in the United States, and then we saw the millions of lives that were taken because of that. We saw the capacity of the human heart for evil in the 20th century, absolutely, and without ability to deny. When we try to live out this command of Christ without grace, and when we think that people have the ability to actually see it through without grace, it yields disastrous results. When we take the perspective of Christ's kingdom, that we need humble reliance upon grace, a different understanding emerges. This is the, the, the key starting point, which is a departure from the world's approach to Jesus' golden rule. Because as we rely upon grace and doubt our own ability, we assume that we have inability. I need God's grace to understand. I need, need God's grace to live. I need God's grace to manifest any goodness in this life and in this world then we work off of the assumption that our minds, our own understandings, need to be renewed and informed so that we would understand what it is that we are to do. It drives us to the Word of God. When you assume your own inability, you say, I need a standard that is true and unchanging and that God speaks to me by the power of His Holy Spirit so that I might understand more of who I am and the life that He wants me to lead. We see uh, the way that uh, this, this comes down. If you consider the Gospel of Luke and, and the way that this golden rule uh, exists or how it comes to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, here once again, Jesus' words. He says this, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There you have Luke's uh, instance of the golden rule. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We learn in God's Word that the Heavenly Father's children are kind to the ungrateful and the evil because that is what the Father did for us, or that is who the Father was and is for us. We go to the Word of God because we doubt our own ability, and we have humble reliance upon grace. And so when we go to find instruction, not only do we find instruction, but we find inspiration because the strength from which, or, or the, the, that place from which we will draw the strength to live out the commands of Jesus are found in the gospel of Christ. It comes from careful, soulful consideration and understanding that though you were ungrateful, though you were evil, 
Though you were a sinner, God manifested, he poured out his grace upon you. To understand the gospel is to understand that the very worst thing that the human being can experience in all of God's creation, eternal condemnation, the Bible describes as eternal death, eternal punishment. That is exactly what we deserve. That is the exact thing that we deserve. The worst thing that could ever be experienced. That is exactly what we deserve because of our sinful hearts. But the very best thing that the human being can experience, eternal blessedness with God, life with Him, communion with Him, eternal life, is exactly what we get in Jesus Christ. Children of the Heavenly Father reflect this very principle that they understand has been manifested in their own life. That the Heavenly Father was kind and merciful to me who did not deserve it. And thus we find not only the instruction, but the inspiration, the life that comes forth from the gospel to carry out what we are called to do by Jesus. We doubt our ability. We go to God's word. We find the gospel. Next, spirituality. It's important to understand that this command is about the first commandment. This command is about serving God. Some people will say, well, Jesus says the law and the prophets is basically just how you love your neighbor. So he's kind of cutting off the spirituality of the law, and nothing could be further from the truth. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, where does Jesus use this phrase, the law and the prophets? He uses it in Matthew chapter 22, and he's summarizing the law. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. What is the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6? What is the repeated emphasis, that refrain, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. The Sermon on the Mount is to remind us that we live our lives, quorum Deo. We live our lives before the face of God, and there is immense importance bound up with every single thing that we do, each and every day. Don't buy into the lie that what you do between Monday and Saturday does not matter to God. It matters to God. Your Heavenly Father who sees in secret, your Heavenly Father who is the supreme judge before whom we will stand one day to give account of how we lived our lives in the body, as it says, 1 Corinthians. He sees. He knows. We take Jesus at his word with a firm conviction that everything we do matters to God and it is not meaningless. And so our love for God is bound up with how we love our neighbors. That's the, that's the lesson of, of this. When Jesus says that this is the law and the prophets, how you outwardly live, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's, it, it shows us that our love and service and devotion to God is bound up with how we love our neighbor. It does not disqualify service to God. It does tell us how it is most evidently seen. Remind yourself every day that this is where you can show yourself to be a child of God in your love for others and that your Father who sees in secret will reward the obedience of a sincere heart. And then finally, eternity. Eternity. Our perspective on life, on this world, 
because we have been transformed by Christ for the good of his kingdom, our perspective is different, and that makes us understand this command in a vastly different way. This is where we probably most directly see the way that the followers of Christ depart from this command as social program. Matthew chapter 6, of course, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we are to have that perspective which places eternity and blessedness with God and our heavenly home as the, the, the greatest affection of our hearts, then how does that translate into action? The things that we would want others to do to us, that's how Jesus calls us to consider this command. What we would want others to do to us would be those things which most equip us and spur us on for Christ and his kingdom. That we would want others to do unto us what would cause us to most clearly and zealously and faithfully live for Christ and his kingdom. It doesn't matter how painful it would be in the moment. If you have an eternal perspective, if your desires have been transformed by the gospel of Christ, then you should look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and your desire for what they would do unto you ought to be, I want them to do unto me that which will most equip me, prepare me, and spur me on to live for Christ and his kingdom. We live in a world where this rule, if it's misunderstood from Jesus' mouth, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, what do you want done unto you? Well, I want to be left alone. I want to be left alone and, and be allowed to live life the way that I want to live my life. And, and so if I want to be left alone, then I'm going to leave others alone and sort of manifest the goodness and the purity that, 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 that they believe is in their own heart. If you go back to that idea of romanticism, the, the life that you are to, to be zealous about living is the life that deep inside your pure heart uh, you want to live. You think you need to manifest that to the world. And then there, become, there comes these collectives of people who say, you know, we, we kind of have this, this mutual similar desire to live a certain way. And then society says, well, I guess we need to affirm them as a group. Because we're, we're living, in some sense, according to this golden rule. We would want to be affirmed, and so we're going to affirm them. And everybody drills deeper and deeper into this maze of morals and values, assuming that your own heart is going to tell you exactly how you should live. But when we live with Christ's perspective, when we live according to the Word of God, we come away saying several things. We will not let people just go their own way, the people of the world outside of the walls of the church. We will evangelize the lost. We will proclaim Christ as the only way to salvation, as the only way to blessedness, as the only way to satisfaction. The great lie being proclaimed out in the world is that if you live the life that you believe you ought to live when you look deepest within yourself. That is where satisfaction will come. That's a lie. 
The only way to blessedness and satisfaction is to know and serve your Creator in humble reliance upon His grace, knowing that there is corruption within your heart that you need to flee, that you need to mortify, that you need to leave behind, and you need to take up your cross and follow Jesus each and every day. That is where blessedness is found. That is where contentment is found. That is where satisfaction is found. So we do not let people of the world go their own way if we live according to uh, this command of Jesus. Because we say, we need to proclaim Christ so that people can be brought into the blessedness that they have through knowing Him. As we look within the church, we do not stand idly by while our brothers and sisters fall into grievous sins. We must do all that we can to remind them of who they are, who they have promised to obey because we're operating with this eternal perspective. And we would say, if I fell into a grievous sin, I would want my brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside me and to remind me what I have promised to do and who I have promised to obey. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. With your transformed perspective, your transformed desires, you want people to do unto you that which most equips you and spurs you on to live for Christ and his kingdom. So you don't stand idly by when your brothers and sisters fall into grievous sins. And finally, it means that you fiercely pursue your own heavenly-mindedness so that you might be able to adequately answer, what are the things that I would want done for me? Ability, spirituality, eternity. Doubt your own ability. You'll go to God's Word to be instructed. When you go to God's Word to be instructed, you'll be inspired because there you find the gospel of Christ. He was kind and merciful to you though you were ungrateful and evil. Thus, you can have a generosity, an abundance uh, in the way that you look outward towards the world and towards your brothers and sisters. Spirituality, our devotion to God is bound up with how we live according to this command. It's about the first commandment, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then eternity. Can you say that I want people to do unto me that which equips me and spurs me on to live for Christ in his kingdom? If you can, then by God's grace, you are being enabled, you are being made ready to live according to this command of, of Jesus. The golden rule, as followers of Christ, we understand it the way that Jesus proclaims it, and by His Spirit, may we live the way He calls us to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all praise and thanks and adoration through the gospel, the call of discipleship. Oh, may we take up our cross and follow Jesus, to suffer, even willingly, knowing that we do all things with that eternal perspective, that we would desire things done for us and unto us that at times hurt. But if it helps us become more devoted to you, if you use that to sanctify us, that we would be grateful. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing number 400.